a pleasure to be here. We are in the middle of a series titled Unwrapped. And basically what it is, is is the show Unwrapped looks behind some of the things that you've known about your entire life. Today we did retro candy, some of the candies that you might have been familiar with growing up, some of you that are of more experienced years, we'll say, um, and might have known some of those things that they were talking about and remember um, Jiffy Pop. Um, does anybody remember? Did anybody do Jiffy Pop? Yeah, I remember doing that on the stove, the little, you know, thing like that. Yeah, and then Sugar Babies. Did you like what he said? They've been reproducing. That was pretty funny. Um, <clears throat> right over y'all's head. Uh, but uh, and so we've been. They look behind those things, and you know, where did they come from? What's the history? What's see something a little different about it? And I kind of wanted to do that with some of Jesus's miracles because a lot of times we just look at them and then just move on. We don't stop and say, what's going on here? Why did he actually walk on water right here? What was the point of that? What did it mean significantly to the disciples that were in the boat? What did it mean when that lady reached out and grabbed him and was healed? And he turns around and goes, whoa, power's been gone from me. Power's, you know, been taken from me. What just happened? Um, and, you know, all those different things. So we wanted to stop and take a little bit of time to look at some of the miracles of Jesus. Because quite honestly, there's not a lot written about them out there. There are very few books that specifically look at the miracles of Jesus. And, and that was kind of interesting for me because I thought it was miracles are a big deal. You know, I, I mean, I can't do those things. I've never walked on water. I've tried. How many of you have tried to walk on water, especially when you're kids? Yeah, you know, you get a running start right at the pool and you're like, see how far I can go. And then, boom. <laughs> right? yeah, Robert Neal's like, I did that. Yeah, I did that yesterday. Um, yeah, so there are all these different things that are just amazing and yet we... We don't always take time to really look at them. So that's what we're doing, and we'll be doing today in the next two, in the next two weeks also. Uh, one thing before I go any further, you might have, if you park on this side of the church, you might have noticed a bright yellow and green dumpster that is a new addition to our church campus. It is in between um, the cooler uh, closet, for lack of a better term, and, uh, and the trailer, fishing under the bridge tra- trailer. It is an Abitibi recycling uh, dumpster. Uh, after years and years of uh, whining and moaning, um, we finally have, have received our recycling dumpster, So, and it is neighborhood-wide. If you have any paper, your newspapers, anything like that that you want, magazines, um, they don't take cardboard, something else. Um, it's, all, it's paper, basically. Uh, dump it in there. Uh, what it will do is it will generate funds for the church as well. A lot of elementary schools have these as well, so if you're doing it at the elementary school, they don't need your money, they get your taxes, okay? Um, you know, come drop it off here. And uh, we at the church are going to be much more intentional about doing that. Uh, we generate a lot, a lot of paper out of this church um, for the many different ministries that we do. And we've made a commitment um, to try and rein that in. And we're going to make an even bigger commitment to try and recycle those things that we still must produce. So I just want to make you aware of that. And it is open for you to use as well. Now, I want to start today with a joke. I don't always do that. You know, an actual joke, you know, there's, my sermons are full of comedic value, but um, I never actually tell a joke. So the, this pastor is driving down the street, and he's swerving a little bit, um, and a policeman pulls him over. And, the, and so he pulls over, he rolls down his window, the cop walks up to him, and he goes, sir, you're driving all over the place. Uh, you're, you've got to be under the influence. And the pastor's like, no, no, I'm not. I'm not under the influence at all. And the cop's like... Sir, seriously, what, what is that you're drinking over there? He goes, it's water. Right, trust me, officer, it's water. So the cop says, let me see it. And he hands him his glass, 
and the cop smells it and takes a little sip of it, spits it out, and goes, this is wine. And the pastor goes, he's done it again. Once again, God's up there going, seriously, why is he a pastor? I'm in John chapter 2 today. If you've got your Bibles, open up to John chapter 2. And in the timeline of things right here, it's the first part of John, so you know not much has happened in the life of Jesus, according to John's gospel. This is what has happened. John doesn't start with the birth of Jesus, if you remember. John starts at the ministry of Jesus. So he starts out with uh, uh, Jesus going and meeting with John the Baptist at the river and the dove descending upon him. And John the Baptist going... That's the one right there. God told me that there would be a guy that would come that the Holy Spirit would descend upon, and he would be the Son of God, the baptism of Jesus. And then Jesus immediately starts calling his disciples, and so he gathers all of his disciples up. And then we get to um, the next day, which would be the third day after his baptism at chapter 2. The next day, Jesus' mother was a guest at a wedding celebration in the village of Canaan of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother spoke to him about the problem. They have no more wine, she told them. This translation that I'm using here doesn't use this word that it does in the NIV and others. But Jesus goes, woman. I like that about him. How does that concern you and me, Jesus asked. My time has not yet come. But his mother, being a typical mother, ignores him and tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Can you imagine the son of God? His mother's like, okay, sure, do whatever he tells you. You know, don't, don't listen to what he says. He doesn't know anything. You know, um, he is the son of God. But six stone water pots were standing there. They were used for Jewish ceremonial purposes and held 20 to 30 gallons each. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled to the brim, he said, dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So they followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, Not knowing where it had come from, even though the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. Usually a host serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone is full and doesn't care, he brings out less expensive wines. I've been to parties like that, but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was Jesus' first display of his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. His very first miracle is changing water into wine. Woo! I mean, this is his opening of his ministry. This is the thing that always makes me laugh because Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, comes to earth. And his first miracle is something insignificant that not that many people would know about. Huh. I wonder why that is. And why is it specifically in John's gospel? There's a few things I'm going to throw at you today. Some of it's going to be history. Some of it's going to be theological. And some of it's going to be applicable. So there's three little different parts of this, if I can get it straight. Let's go to the history part first. Why is it in John's gospel? John, as you might know from church history, later went on to be a pastor and to plant churches throughout Asia. He traveled all throughout Asia, and he went to different spots, and he kind of followed uh, behind Paul in some instances and went ahead of Paul in other instances. But there were different places where people would consider John as their pastor. John goes in, he starts a church, he gets believers, he gets people fired up, he leaves leaders, and he goes somewhere else and does the same. There's a place uh, in Turkey 
Um, and it is one of the seven churches in Revelation that John talks about, Pergamum. And when we were there a few uh, years ago with Ray, this came up. This miracle came up. And there's a reason. There's a God by the name of Dionysus that the people of the time worshipped. Now, Dionysus was the god of one of the gods of fertility, but he was also more specifically the god of wine. He was the god of the harvest of the vineyard. And every year during his, his festival, when people would come together and they would worship Dionysus, some things would happen. One, they would always open with a play. The, it is recorded in history that the very first play ever to be written and produced was about Dionysus. He's the inventor of Broadway, I guess. And, and so they would open with a play, and then they would get into eating of raw meat, bloody raw meat. That would just, it would be a horrific scene, dripping all over them. They would have massive and wild orgies all throughout the city. It was just open. Anything goes during this time to celebrate Dionysus. When we were there, Ray said it was kind of like spring break these days. Anything goes. What happens in Pergamon during Dionysus stays in Pergamon during Dionysus worship, basically. And then a critical moment would happen when the priests of the Dionysus order would take big vats of wine into the temple and come out after Dionysus had changed, I mean, vats of water, that would make more sense, wouldn't it? Into the temple, and then they would come out after Dionysus had done his stuff and bring out vats of wine. They took him inside, you know, and then Dionysus was supposedly, he had the power to change water to wine. And then people would just drink and consume this excessively. So when John writes about this, the people in the area where Dionysus is worshipped, they go, whoa, wait a minute. Here's a guy that really had the power. Here's a guy that did it in front of people. Here's a guy that truly changed water to wine in front of people. It meant something to them. A lot of times we don't read the Bible in historical context. We read it for us today, and that's great, and that's wonderful, and God wants us to do that. But we also need to see it through the eyes of the people to which it was written at the time it was written. So when John writes this, the people of Pergamum, the people of all around Asia that are worshiping Dionysus, and they see this, they can go, wait a minute, tell me more about this Jesus guy. Because there's other things that intertwine. See, part of the reason why Jesus did the miracles that he did was to show that he was indeed God. It was to reveal God's glory. If you look at a lot of the miracles that he did and that he accomplished over he accomplished that he did over his time, they meant something to those people. Something else was going on in their society at the time that was fake and was counterfeit. Some other person, some other group was claiming that there was another God, and this God could do this. But Jesus would come in and go, bam, I'm God. It was to show his glory. It was to show his glory. That was the purpose of many, most of his miracles, was to show the glory of Jesus Christ so that people would see and go, ah, I get it. I get it. You're God. What does it say? The disciples see this and go, he's the son of God. He must be in order to do this. He must be. It was one of those things they had just come from John the Baptist. They'd heard John the Baptist's story about the dove descending. A lot of them followed Jesus right there. A lot of them came a little bit after. But then they see this and they're like, ah, oh, I get it now. 
to show God's glory. But then the next question is, why right then? I mean, his mother is, of course, you know, the stereotypical Jewish mother. Son, come over here. You should. We're so invited. You know, so we're so blessed to be here. Make the water into wine. Do something about it. He's like, nah, not yet. But then he does it. And I've always wondered why. I mean, I said that at the beginning. Why right now? Why right here in this little insignificant thing? A few things, I think. One, because of the importance of a wedding. Because of the beauty and the imagery that God sets up throughout his book about us being the bride of Christ. The imagery of man and woman together as that of believer and Savior coming together as one. He paints that picture time and time again that this is the relationship you will have with me. So close that no one can come in between. That is our relationship. So maybe that's why he did it at a wedding. Maybe that's why the first one he did was there. Because uh, the significance of this is if the groom had run out of wine at his wedding ceremony, it would have been talked about for generations. It would have been such a great disgrace upon this young man that he probably would not have recovered. Now, some of you have been to weddings and wedding receptions where the bar ran out of something. And you're like, okay, well, that's a bummer, but, you know, life goes on, and you forgot about it the next day. At this period of time, when a celebration was happening and the bar ran out of something, it was remembered. It was remembered for a long time. This young man would have started his life with his wife already in the hole. People would have looked at him as he walked down the street. That's the guy that couldn't bring the wine out at the end of the party. He's the one. That's the guy right there. You don't want to trust him because he can't even do his own wedding celebration. It would have been a major deal. Jesus knew this. And so maybe that's why he stepped in. To show the significance of that wedding celebration. But I also think it's because it is something so small to us. Because we look at that and he's just like, okay. God cares about those little things. God cares desperately and deeply about every little thing in our life. Remember the first day when I first started talking about miracles and I said there is no God doesn't have a, a weight scale of miracles? Like bringing somebody back from the dead is the same as changing water into wine. On God's scale, there, nothing's too hard for him. There is nothing that is too difficult for him. But for us, Looking at this, seeing this as maybe somewhat of a trivial deal compared to the things he does later. Maybe this is to tell us that God cares about those little things in our lives. I don't know if you've ever been praying to God about something and then you feel guilty about it because you're like, well, this is just something silly. Because I know people that have such greater hardships and such greater things going on in their lives. We were just in... A few of us were just in New York for a conference um, this past week. And we all went out to do these learning journeys, and we split up, split up in groups. And one of us, uh, Carrie Spilhagen, our missions coordinator, uh, got, to, got to be homeless in New York City for a few hours. And what they did was they took everything from her and from the people that were in this group that did this. Jewelry, 
sunglasses, glasses, uh, money, wallets, cell phones, nothing. You walked out and you were told to dress in, in kind of a you know, disheveled look. And then they sent you out. And you were supposed to be homeless. And one of the things you were supposed to do was to dig in a trash can for a minute at a very busy intersection, a very busy corner in New York somewhere, to dig in the trash can for a minute. You were to engage in conversation with a homeless person. Now, Carrie went out there, and she talked to a homeless person, and she really got into this conversation with someone. And then she said she went to the trash can, and she looked in it, but she couldn't stick her hands in there. She said, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. turns out that in her group, only two people did. Nobody in her group could do it. There was like 20 people in her group. Only two of them brought themselves to the point where they actually reached in and dug around. The rest of them just said, I couldn't do it. And we were talking about this, and, and, and I was asking Carrie about her conversation with a homeless person. He said, you know, we just want dignity. She said, do people ignore you most of the time? He goes, yeah, most of the time. Most of the time they ignore me. Some of the times they say hi and are actually decent to me. And this guy was a homeless man that had a, there's a, uh, an organization in New York where they, they bring homeless people out to the streets and they set up a table and a big water jar, and they're asking for coins, and they have to work for things. And, I mean, they're trying to get them back on their feet and teach them different things, and this is one of those guys that she was speaking with. And we walked by probably six of those tables throughout that time. And I, did you ever give to it? Yeah, Cindy did. Um, I didn't. And, you know, there was, come on, just a coin, just a coin, just a coin. That's all it is. That's all it is, man. And, and I didn't realize at the time that they were homeless people until after speaking with Carrie. But what the guy said was, we just want dignity. Most of the time when I walked by him, I assumed the typical New York attitude. Because, by the way, I tried to say howdy to some people. Nothing. I needed one of those A&M buttons, you know, howdy, darn it. Um, you know, everybody's in their own little world. They have their earphones in, and they don't want to do anything with the rest of the world. They just want to be, that's another day. But after speaking with, with Carrie, I was like, God. Oh, I'm so incredibly blessed. I mean, there's things going on in my life right now, and there's a lot of stuff weighing on me and a lot of decisions that Jenna and I have to make and just tons of stuff going on right now. And then I look at this, and I'm like, whoa, are you kidding me? How blessed I am. See, God cares about every one of us. Each one of us has our own little thing. Each one of us has our problems. Each one of us has our victories. Each one of us has our worries and our concerns that we go on our knees at night and pray about. For some people, it's, you know, I I need a new car. For some people, it's, I need a new wardrobe for the new job that I just got, and I'm worried about that. For some people, it's, I need food. I need shelter. I need a coat because it's cold. Such a vast degree of concern. And yet, God cares about each one of them. My father-in-law says something. He he calls it the burnt toast syndrome. I think I've mentioned this in here before. For some people, it's cancer. For other people, it's burnt toast that ruins their day. For me and for our situation with my daughter, we have major medical concerns and major things going on. And some of you look at that and you're like, wow, what's that all about? That's a lot. All I have is... I burned my toast this morning. Well, 
Yeah, for you, that could be a very... Is that a fire alarm, Stacy? that I'm hearing? <laughs> I mean, should we be evacuating right now? <laughs> Some of us have burning down buildings. Um, <laughs> wow. I tried to fight it, but it kept it. I mean, I kept hearing it. Um, these big ears, you know, as a teacher, I hear everything. But that's the thing, is, is God cares about it. He cares about Lazarus, who died, and he went and he raised him from the dead. He cares about the woman that was consistently bleeding, constantly bleeding her whole life, that he healed her because she believed. He cared about this wedding party where a guy ran out of wine. And in order to save face, Jesus did a miracle. That's the thing. Is Jesus cares about each one of us, each one of our concerns and our problems. He just wants us to be like his mom and go, what are you going to do? I need you here. And then, do you, do you remember what she said right after that? She said, Jesus, they ran out of wine. It's time for you to do something. He goes, Mom, come on. It's not my time yet. And what does she do? Do what he says. Do what he says. I think that's the most critical part of this. Do what he says. When you go and you're on your knees and you're praying to God and you're saying, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. God's going to move and speak in your life. And the key for you is to do what he says. Because it might not always be what you want to do. It might not always be something that you think is the right thing to do, but you just feel like God's telling you to go talk to this person who is ruining their life because of alcohol and they're your best friend, but you think if you go talk to them, they're never going to speak to you again, but you know that God is telling you to speak to this person. Go talk to them. Don't argue. Just do what he says. Do what he says. This miracle is is something that You know, a lot of people say, well, I can drink because the first miracle that God made was changing water into wine. Baptists don't like to hear that. They say it's not fermented. It was just grape juice. But what it is for me is, is the realization that God cares about me. I'm not the greatest man that ever lived. I'm not going to be the most famous. I'm not even the most famous in my own house. I'm not going to probably move mountains or shape worlds or, or do all of these things. But God cares about me deeply and desperately. God loves me. God wants me to come to him and, and to have the chutzpah as his mother did to say, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? I need you to give me direction right now. I need you to help me to decide what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I need you to help me decide what's gonna, what the best plan for my daughter is. I need you to help me get through today. What are you going to do about this? And just remember this. As he listens and he cares, it's just up for us to do what he says. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who loves us so much. That you do listen to us. That you do hear us as we call out to you. Help us, Lord, to remember that. That it doesn't take an earth-shattering event for you to move in our life. 
And it doesn't take a tragic occurrence, a sickness, or something that the world sees as so desperate and evil, that it could be something simple, something where we need you to move in our life. And you're there. God, give us the strength to continually come to you, to continually seek your wisdom and your will. And let us do what you say. Let us have the courage to do what you say. God, we thank you and we praise you for this day.